escape was a lad that killed many a man. He robbed the Danville train, but the dirty little coward that got Mr. Howard has... Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. It's great to be with you today. A special thanks to the many who have found us at patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network and are chipping in a little each month to ride with us to 2001 episodes. We keep that link alive in the show notes for your convenience. And speaking of writing... We're bringing some Western history alive this week with the story of the famous outlaw Jesse James. Like some other famous outlaw legends, such as Billy the Kid, and more recently John Dillinger, Jesse James was a hero to the downtrodden. Why? I don't really know or understand, because it seems to me that true heroes should be people you want to emulate in real life. But in the case of Jesse James, one friendly journalist who was a staunch Southern supporter created an aura around James that turned him into a hero in the minds of many, despite the fact that Jesse James was a ruthless killer. Oscar Wilde was quoted, Americans are certainly great hero worshippers, and always take heroes from the criminal classes. Now Wilde might have done better saying often instead of always, because he seems to be forgetting the prominence of American heroes such as George Washington, Davy Crockett, and Daniel Boone just for starters. As for the lawbreakers, I think there comes a time in people's life, especially when that hasn't been much of a life, when they make a decision to go to the dark side, which places them on the opposite side of the law and of organized society. It's like a pinball machine hitting tilt. Once you make that turn, there's no coming back. They say that's what happened to Jesse James when he surrendered at the end of the Civil War and was rewarded with a bullet in the chest. No doubt he deserved it for the crimes he'd been committing as a bushwhacker and Confederate guerrilla. But that wasn't how post-war justice was supposed to work. He lived, but was a changed man. And where the Civil War had ended, his own private war had begun. He became the mastermind, along with his brother Frank, of a gang of Missouri outlaws which went by a number of names, primary among them being the James Gang and the Cole Younger Gang, which became the most feared, most publicized, most successful, and most wanted gangs on the American frontier in the 1870s. Although their crimes were reckless and often brutal, they still garnered significant public sympathy and support as they robbed banks, trains, and stagecoaches in 11 states surrounding Missouri, killing innocent civilians as well as lawmen who pursued them. A legend was created around Jesse to the effect that he was a sort of a Robin Hood, robbing from the rich and giving to the poor, but that was all a pile of lies. Unless it was his cohorts in crime, or those paid to keep their mouths shut, he gave to no one. Some of the legends surrounding him centered around where he hid his money, and apparently there was piles of it. For example, in 1874, Jesse had paid 800 gold dollars for a 160-acre tract of land which he had purchased from Thomas Hudson Barron. That's documented. He used gold dollars to purchase it. That was rare. Others volunteered information in future years. His friend George Roaming of El Paso saw 20 ingots of gold weighing 15 to 20 pounds each stacked on a shelf in Jesse's barn. Jesse kept five-gallon buckets of silver around the house. He stored buckets of the money in the outhouse. He buried ingots on the property. So say the affidavits of the close friends who helped him bury them. He had more than $50,000 in greenbacks stored in a trunk. He made his son, Byron Courtney, count it one day. 
he had thirteen five-gallon lard cans full of gold coins. This was documented in a letter to the Department of Veteran Affairs. And so on, and so on. And Jesse had a number of aliases, too. Few people, other than his mother, some very close family members, and the outlaws he rode with even knew what he looked like. The law and the Pinkertons, sponsored by the railroads, were after him, and they weren't that sure of what he looked like. The only picture of him they had showed Jesse at around 16 years old with no beard. He had long since adopted a full beard and wore a hat at all times. Most people and biographers believe that Jesse James was shot by his cousin and outlaw cohort Bob Ford while adjusting a picture frame in Jesse's rented house in St. Joseph's, Missouri, and that Bob did it for the reward, which is what happened in 1882. Well, many say it wasn't Jesse James who was shot. The Jesse set it all up. They say the man who was shot was a cousin named Wood Height, who looked very, very much like Jesse. And he'd been shot by Bob Ford in an argument recently. One story saying in December, one saying just days before, Jesse's last day in April of 1882. These same people believe that Jesse, looking for a way to disappear from the long arm of the law, saw the opportunity there and arranged with Bob Ford to claim he had shot Jesse, staging Height's body in that house firing a bullet into the wall near the picture, and then going out and saying he had shot Jesse James. Jesse, some say, changed his name to James L. Courtney and headed for Texas, where he lived to a ripe old age. And he even attended his own funeral. And they may well be right. But there are two stories, and we'll present both as fairly as we can and let you decide. You might as well grab that cup of coffee now and sit back, because we're going to take you to the First Baptist Church in Kearney, Missouri. The date is April 6, 1882, and they're getting ready to bury Jesse James. The town of Kearney is crowded. A funeral procession is headed for the graveyard. There are six pallbearers, five of whom were identified by the reporters covering the funeral. Those five were J.D. Ford, Deputy Marshal J.T. Reed, Charles Scott, James Henderson, and William Bond. The sixth pallbearer, whom no one could name later, seemed to be in charge of the cortege and directed the movements. He was described as a stout and well-preserved man of about 40 years. In a collection of photographs of the burial called the Phillips Collection, Frank James, Jesse's brother, stands to the left of the coffin, which is open, and lying slightly propped up on the fresh bed of soil waiting to be filled into the grave, in such a way as to provide a good view of the deceased face and the crowd standing around the coffin for the photographs. Frank's wife Anne stands behind him, Zerelda James Samuel, Jesse's and Frank's mother, stands to the left of the coffin. To her left, a man who, perhaps not coincidentally, looks a lot like Jesse James, stands, hat off, looking dejectedly down at the coffin. The Phillips Collection named him possibly as John Newman Edwards, who was an editor for the newspaper. At least that's how Jesse's great-great-grandson Daniel Duke and his wife Teresa put it in their book, The Mysterious Life and Fake Death of Jesse James. They believe that's Jesse standing there. Naturally, I wanted to find a picture of John Newman Edwards to compare, and that led me to his incredible story, which follows later. First, yes, he, Edwards, has a similar mustache and facial appearance to the very few, more recent images available of Jesse James. So it could be Edwards, and it could be Jesse. Edwards had come to Missouri in the 1850s to work as a newspaper printer, and while there he met Joe Shelby, becoming fast friends who often hunted and fished together. When war broke out, Edward served in the Confederacy as a major under Shelby with distinction. 
When the war ended, Shelby didn't surrender. Edwards rode to Mexico with Shelby and 1,000 men to join forces with Maximilian to try to keep the Confederate hope alive. That story was told, by the way, very loosely, I might add, in the movie The Undefeated, starring John Wayne and Rock Hudson. And if you're an old football fan, L.A. Rams quarterback Roman Gabriel also had a role in that one. And you'll never believe who directed it. In our last episode, Jack Johnson vs. the Great White Hope, you met boxer-turned-actor Victor McLaughlin. His son, Andrew, became a famous TV and movie director. The Undefeated was one of the movies Victor's son directed. It's funny how these things seem to connect, but back to our story. Edwards became a newspaper editor who was constantly found banging the drum for the Southern cause, even after the war had long ended, and praising bloody marauders and killers for their chivalry, one of those being Jesse James, who was busy killing and stealing all around Missouri and Kansas with bloody Bill Anderson during the Civil War. They literally tore apart and burned down Centralia, Missouri, killing hundreds of innocents. Edwards, writing for the Kansas City Times, heard about Jesse in 1869 and made an effort to meet with him. They met, and Edwards got Jesse's story and wrote it in an article called The Chivalry of Crime, building Jesse James up as a folk hero and laying the blame on what he called the corrupt state of Missouri, saying that it was the Unionists affiliated with President Grant who ruined it. Edwards had risen high in the Confederate wing of the Democrat Party after the war and was in full myth-making mode. In an effort to whitewash James's actions, Edwards wrote about how Jesse James had acted as a Robin Hood, robbing from the rich and giving to the poor. It was all hype meant to build up and forgive the acts of terrorism done in the name of the Southern cause and pro-slavery. And from all I can find, Edwards may not have been at Jesse James's funeral. According to one source, he found out about James's death later and wrote a eulogy praising Jesse James and his life. Edwards was working at that time as an editor in Kansas City. If this is correct, who was the man in the picture at the funeral? If you really want to do some sleuthing, see if you can find proof that Edwards was in Kearney on April 6, 1882, or proof that he was anywhere else for that matter. You will have solved one of history's great mysteries. Later that day, Jesse's aunt questioned Zerelda about the body in the coffin, and Zerelda gave her a very unusual reply, saying, Oh, that's a rabbit's foot. Now how else could you take this but that Zerelda was wishing for good luck? What good luck would she be wishing for? Pretty obviously, if that wasn't Jesse in the coffin, then no one would question it. They had made it this far. Once dirt was thrown on that coffin, her son was free to live a new life with a changed identity. When Zerelda was asked to identify the body on April 3, 1882, she replied, Gentlemen, you've made a mistake. That's not my son. And in their book, The Mysterious Life and Faked Death of Jesse James, Daniel and Teresa Duke take a deep dive into the multiple exhumations of the body believed to have been Jesse James and raise serious doubts regarding whether or not any portion of the real Jesse James was dug up. And although there is much more, one salient point they make questions the testimony of Bob Ford's shooting of James in that Ford swore twice that he shot James with a large caliber weapon saying in one testimony that he killed him with a Smith & Wesson forty-four, and then another that he had shot him with a Colt forty-five. He swore that he was standing about ten feet from James. His shooting arm was fully extended, leaving the muzzle of the gun somewhere between four and six feet from James's head. Tests show that either caliber gun shot from that range, entering the back of the head as it did, would have blown off the face and made it unrecognizable. However, the face was clearly recognizable as it laid in the coffin. On the other hand, Wood Height was shot in an argument, 
and probably from the front. Who was the man in the coffin? People pursuing this mystery, including direct descendants of Jesse James, believed the man in the casket was Wood Height. Daniel J. Duke believed Jesse James lived a long life under an assumed name, and again, as previously mentioned, they've written books about it, books based upon 20 years of research, saying that they have proof. The Dukes uncover a pile of evidence in their books, much of it circumstantial, but some of which is pretty strong, and here are some examples. A top photo-matching firm certified that the pictures of James L. Courtney and Jesse James were pictures of the same man. Family tradition for the most part agrees that Jesse James was not the man at the inquest and that he lived a long life in Texas as James L. Courtney. Arch Nicholson, the historically accepted nephew of Frank and Jesse, identified Jesse James in a Courtney family photo taken in Blevins, Texas, as well as Jesse's wife, known in Texas as Mary Ellen Barron Courtney. That photo surfaced on eBay 135 years after it was taken and goes a long way to saying that James did survive and change his name to J.L. Courtney. By the way, also featured in that Courtney family photo are found Frank James and his new bride Annie Rawson. That was the event that brought that family together. And Wood Heights' grave? No one knows where it is. However, I did come across one account which stated that Wood Height was dug up and delivered to the local law for the reward that was being offered but that blew up when the person delivering the body was reminded by the sheriff that the reward was for the capture of Woodhite, not for his body. Whether the corpse was returned to the gravesite is not known. Then there was a former gang member named George Shepard, who, upon seeing a likeness of James posted in a window in Kearney, said that the likeness in the window wasn't one of Jesse James at all. That was a problem at the coroner's inquest, too. There were no pictures, only likenesses. James did have a missing fingertip and two bullet scars. Those were found on the body at the inquest. And a local sheriff named Timberlake, who had known Jesse before the war, said it was him. The coroner ruled that Bob Ford had shot Jesse James. That's just some of the controversy surrounding the death of Jesse James. We'll get to the life of Jesse James right after these sponsor messages. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to our story. But the sturdy little coward that shot Mr. Howard has laid poor Jesse in his grave. It was Robert Ford, that sturdy little coward. I wonder how he does feel. For he ate up Jesse's bread and he slept in Jesse's bed. Then laid poor Jesse in his grave. Poor Jesse had a wife to mourn for his life. Three children, they were brave. But the dirty little power that shot Mr. Howard has laid poor Jesse in his grave. Now Jesse was a man of friends to the poor. Jesse Woodson James was born somewhere between October 31st, 1846 and September 5th, 1847. He had an older brother named Frank, 
another brother who died very young, and a younger sister named Susan. After Susan's birth, their father Robert left the family to preach to gold miners in California, where he became seriously sick and was buried in an unmarked grave. Their mother Zerelda married a wealthy farmer named Benjamin Sims, who was a cruel man who didn't like Frank or Jesse. He died in a horse accident in 1854, after which Zerelda married a third time to Dr. Reuben Samuel, who turned out to be a loving father and husband. Zerelda had four children with him. Years before the Civil War, tensions were breaking out between pro- and anti-slavery factions along the Kansas and Missouri border. Militias formed, skirmishes broke out, and men started dying in large numbers. Frank joined Quantrill's partisan rangers, and soon after a Union militia came to their farm looking for him. Jesse, who was four years younger than Frank, and his father, Dr. Samuels, were working in the fields when a company of soldiers rode in and demanded that they tell them where Frank was. The doctor, Jesse's father, said he didn't know, so they tied a rope around a tree branch and hung him, three times, trying to get a confession out of him. Jesse, who was 14, ran down to the cornfield, and they chased him on their horses, prodding him with bayonets. He wouldn't tell them anything, and then they beat him on his back with the flats of their swords. He couldn't wear a shirt or sleep on his back for many weeks afterward. They left his father nearly dead under the tree where they tried to hang him. Zerelda said years later that her husband was never right in the head after that day. Two years later, filled with hatred and vengeance, 14-year-old Jesse said he was joining Quantrill's raiders. His mother said she gave him money, some clothes, and one of their best horses, and when he was able, he rode out seeking revenge. That was 1864. None of that justifies the killing of innocents that he did afterwards, but it was a great example of why the hatred between North and South ran so deep. These were hard times and hard people who stopped at nothing to accomplish their goals. Quantrill's raiders soon became known for violent killing sprees. They attacked the town of Lawrence, Kansas, known to be a center for anti-slavery, and the jail there was holding some of Quantrill's men who had been captured, as well as some of their women. On the morning of August 21, 1863, 450 of Quantrill's raiders attacked the town and killed 164 mostly unarmed civilians, setting fire to the town. Most of the men and boys were gathered up after they surrendered and were begging for mercy as they were shot. Jesse and Frank James participated in that and other similar raids. Frank and Jesse James took part in the Centralia Massacre in September of 1864, in which guerrillas stopped a train carrying unarmed Union soldiers returning home from duty and killed or wounded 22 of them. The guerrillas scalped and dismembered some of the dead. They had turned into vicious animals, and Jesse, at age 16, was right in the middle of it all. After doing this, the guerrillas set a trap for the regiment which had been put in pursuit of them, killing 100 of them who tried to surrender. Jesse himself shot and killed an unarmed Major Johnson who was commanding the brigade. Quantrill was killed in 1864, and that gang split up into many factions, one of those being the James Gang, which robbed the Liberty Bank in Liberty, Missouri on February 13, 1866. This was the first successful daytime bank robbery in peacetime committed in the U.S., carried out by 12 members of the James Gang, two of which whom entered the bank, with one of them asking for a bill to be changed, the pattern that they would use in all future robberies. That robbery netted $62,000. In 1869, the James brothers joined with Cole Younger and his brothers John, Jim, and Bob, as well as Clell Miller and other ex-Confederates, to form what became known as the James Younger Gang. 
Dozens of robberies followed in Missouri and Kentucky, then in Iowa, Illinois, Louisiana, Texas, and Arkansas. They made great fodder for the newspapers. One robbery took place at the Kansas City Industrial Exposition, which was attracting nearly 60,000 visitors per day, more than twice the population of Kansas City at that time. On September 26, 1872, three masked men, including Jesse and Frank James, robbed the ticket office there and escaped with $978. About 10,000 fairgoers were leaving the exposition at that time, which was right at sunset. One of the three grabbed the cash box, while the other two held the crowd at bay with their pistols. One girl in the crowd was shot in the calf. Had the gang arrived 30 minutes earlier, they would have taken $12,000, the day's receipts, but those had been removed by the treasurer just minutes before. Kansas City Times owner and friend of Jesse James, John Newman Edwards, covered the robbery with an article saying that Jesse James was really a modern-day Robin Hood, a hero fighting corruption, leading other Southern heroes who were waging an ideological battle against the Union's occupation of the South in the days following the Civil War. And the bleeding hearts lapped it up. Beginning with that article, and following it, the tide of love for the hero Jesse James spread among the uninformed and gullible, proving just how much the power of the press in the hands of those with ideological access to grind really has. A mile west of Adair, Iowa, you'll find an upright train car wheel today that marks the spot of the first robbery of a moving train in the U.S., which happened on July 21, 1873. The James gang had heard that $75,000 in gold was going aboard that train, so they dismantled the tracks, causing the train to run off the tracks, killing the engineer. Whereupon the gang robbed the car containing the safe and then held up the passengers in the passenger sections. They netted only $2,000 from the safe and about 1000 in jewelry and cash from the passengers. The James Younger gang holdups were characterized by the gang's use of Ku Klux Klan hoods that idealized the idea that they were Confederates fighting against Reconstruction. But after robbing the train passengers of their personal possessions, that image began to tarnish, and even the positive press they were getting couldn't stop people from thinking that maybe this gang really wasn't giving back to the people. Apparently, being robbed by Robin Hood himself really changed people's thinking in a hurry. After that, it was a stagecoach robbery in Bienville Parish, Louisiana, in January of 1874, followed by a stagecoach robbery in Hot Springs, Arkansas, which netted about $4,000. That was followed by a steamboat robbery in Port Jefferson, Louisiana, netting a few more thousand. More train and stagecoach robberies followed, and due to the fact that the robberies were well-planned and executed, Jesse James was never caught. The gang next robbed a train on the Kansas Pacific Railroad near Muncie, Kansas, on December 8, 1874. That was one of the outlaws' most successful robberies, gaining them $30,000. Gang member William Bud McDaniel was captured by a Kansas City police officer after the robbery, and later was shot during an escape attempt. On the night of January 25, 1875, Pinkerton agents surrounded the James's farm in Kearney, Missouri. Frank and Jesse had been there earlier, but unknown to the Pinkertons, had already left. When the Pinkertons threw an iron incendiary device into the house, it exploded when it rolled into a blazing fireplace. The blast nearly severed the right arm of Zerelda Samuel, the James boy's mother, and the arm had to be amputated at the elbow that night, and it killed their nine-year-old half-brother, Archie Samuel. On April 12, 1875, an unknown gunman shot dead Daniel Askew, a neighbor, a neighbor and former Union militiaman who may have been suspected of providing the Pinkertons with a base for their raid. 
That raid earned the Pinkertons a lot of bad press and put a lot of people on the side of the James gang. Alan Pinkerton, not enjoying the reputation he had just earned from attacking boys and old ladies, then abandoned the chase for the James Younger gang. By September of 1875, at least part of the gang had ventured east to Huntington, West Virginia, where they robbed a bank on September 7th. Two new members participated, Tom McDaniel, brother of Bud McDaniel, already with the gang, and Tom Webb, a Confederate veteran who'd been at Lawrence with Frank and Cole. McDaniel was killed by a posse, and Webb was caught. The other two robbers, Frank and Cole Younger, escaped. Also in 1875, the two James brothers moved to the outskirts of Nashville, Tennessee, probably to save their mother from further raids by detectives. Once there, Jesse James began to write letters to the local press, asserting his place as a Confederate hero and a martyr to radical Republican vindictiveness. And the press, in their need to sell copy, was only too happy to publish every letter, letters which made Jesse look like a hero who had done no wrong. On July 7, 1876, Frank and Jesse James, Cole and Bob Younger, Clell Miller, Charlie Pitts, Bill Chadwell, and Hobbs Carey robbed the Missouri Pacific Railroad at the Rocky Cut near Otterville, Missouri. The new man, Carey, was arrested soon after, and he readily identified his accomplices. The Rocky Cut raid set the stage for the final act of what by then was being called the James Younger Gang, the famous Northfield, Minnesota raid on September 7, 1876. Their target was the First National Bank of Northfield, which was far outside of the gang's usual territory. The idea for the raid came from Jesse and Bob Younger. Cole tried to talk his brother out of the plan, but Bob refused to back down. Reluctantly, Cole agreed to go, writing to his brother Jim in California to come home. Jim Younger had never wanted anything to do with the Cole's outlaw activities, but he agreed to go out of family loyalty. Cole, Jim, and Bob Younger... Frank and Jesse James, Charlie Pitts, Clell Miller, and Bill Chadwell took the train to St. Paul, Minnesota in early September of 1876. After a layover in St. Paul, they divided into two groups, one going to Mankato, the other to Red Wing, on either side of Northfield. They purchased expensive horses and scouted the terrain around the towns, agreeing to meet south of Northfield along the Cannon River near Dundas on the morning of September 7, 1876. The gang attempted to rob the bank about 2 p.m. on September 7th, among whom were many Civil War veterans who kept weapons nearby had seen the gang leave a local restaurant near the mill shortly after noon, where they had dined on fried eggs. Three of the outlaws, Bob Younger, Frank James, and Charlie Pitts, crossed the bridge by the Ames Mill and entered the bank. The other five, consisting of Jesse James, Cole and Jim Younger, Bill Stiles, and Clell Miller, stood guard outside. Two were standing outside the bank's front door, and the other three were waiting in Mills Square to guard the gang's escape route. According to some reports, J.S. Allen shouted to the townspeople, Get your guns, boys. They're robbing the bank. Once local citizens realized a robbery was in progress, several took up arms from local hardware stores. Shooting from behind cover, they poured deadly fire on the outlaws. During the gun battle, medical student Henry Wheeler killed Miller, shooting from a third-floor window of the Dampier House Hotel across the street from the bank. He was later able to claim the body for medical research. Another civilian named A.R. Manning, who took cover at the corner of the Seaver building down the street, killed Stiles. Other civilians wounded the younger brothers. Cole was shot in his left hip, Bob suffered a shattered elbow, and Jim was shot in the jaw. The only civilian fatality on the street was 30-year-old Nicholas Gustafson, 
an unarmed recent Swedish immigrant who was killed by Cole Younger at the corner of 5th Street and Division. Another Swede named John Olsen was an eyewitness to the Gustafsson shooting and later testified against Cole Younger. Inside the bank, the assistant cashier, Joseph Lee Haywood, refused to open the safe and was killed for resisting. The two other employees in the bank were teller Alonzo Bunker and assistant bookkeeper Frank Wilcox. Bunker escaped from the bank by running out the back door, despite being wounded in the right shoulder by Pitts as he ran. The three robbers then ran out of the bank after hearing the shooting outside and mounted their horses to make a run for it, having taken only several bags of what turned out to be nickels from the bank. In addition to the death of Miller and Stiles, every one of the rest of the gang was wounded, including Frank James and Pitts, both shot in their right legs. Jesse James was the last one to be shot, taking a bullet in the thigh as the gang escaped. The six surviving outlaws rode out of town on the Dundas Road toward Millersburg, where four of them had spent the night before. The next day, open coffins with dead outlaws were placed in store windows in Northfield for the public to see and the press to photograph. I remember the first time I saw that photo. It was in a Time Life book called The Gunfighters, part of a great series of leather-bound Time Life books that came out in the 70s. Minnesotans joined posses and set up picket lines by the hundreds. After several days, the gang had only reached the western outskirts of Mankato, where they decided to split up. The Youngers and Pitts remained on foot, moving west, until finally they were cornered in a swamp called Hanska Slough, just south of LaSalle, Minnesota, on September 21, two weeks after the Northfield raid. In the gunfight that followed, Pitts was killed, and the Youngers were again wounded. The Youngers surrendered and pleaded guilty to murder in order to avoid execution. Frank and Jesse secured horses and fled west across southern Minnesota, turning south just inside the border of Dakota Territory. In the face of hundreds of pursuers and a nationwide alarm, Frank and Jesse escaped, but the infamous James Younger gang was no more. Frank and Jesse were the only ones that weren't caught. On September 23, 1876, the Younger brothers were taken to the Rice County Jail in Faribault. On November 16th, a grand jury issued four indictments, one each for the first-degree murders of Joseph Haywood and Nicholas Gustafson, one for bank robbery, and one for assault with deadly weapons on the wounded bank clerk Bunker. The three brothers pleaded guilty on November 20, 1876, and were sentenced to life terms in the state penitentiary at Stillwater. We'll return to our story right after this sponsor message. And now, back to our story. Having successfully escaped, Frank James joined Jesse in Nashville, Tennessee, where they spent the next three years living peacefully. Frank, in particular, seems to have thrived in his new life farming in the White Creek area. Jesse, however, didn't adapt well to peace. Accordingly, he gathered up new recruits, formed a new gang, and returned to a life of crime. On October 8, 1879, Jesse and his gang robbed the Chicago and Alton Railroad near Glendale, Missouri. Unfortunately for Jesse, one of the men, Tucker Basham, was captured by the posse. He told authorities he'd been recruited by Bill Ryan, and the law started looking for him, which put them once again on Jesse's trail. On September 3, 1880, Jesse James and Bill Ryan robbed a stagecoach near Mammoth Cave, Kentucky. On March 11, 1881, Jesse, Ryan, and Jesse's cousin Wood Height robbed a federal paymaster at Muscle Shows, Alabama, taking 5240 Shortly afterward, a drunk and boastful Ryan was arrested in White's Creek near Nashville, and both Frank and Jesse James fled back to Missouri. On July 15, 1881, Frank and Jesse James, Wood and Clarence Height, and Dick Liddell robbed the Rock Island Railroad near Winston, Missouri of 
Train conductor William Westfall and passenger John McCullough were killed. On September 7, 1881, Jesse James carried out what many researchers say was his last train robbery, holding up the Chicago and Alton Railroad. Previous Missouri governors had tried to capture the James brothers, employing everything from reward offers to a squad of state-funded secret police. But Missouri Governor Thomas Crittenton knew that to catch a thief, you needed a thief, and he finally brought Jesse down with the help of the outlaw's own gang. Thomas Crittenton had served with the Missouri State Militia and fought bushwhackers during the war. But Missouri's new governor also had practiced law with an ex-Confederate general, and he had no desire to refight 15-year-old battles. What Crittenton did want was an end to Jesse's outlaw antics. He reeled against James in his 1881 inaugural speech, saying Missouri cannot be the home and abiding place of lawlessness of any character. And Crittenton went right to work rooting out that lawlessness. The legislature had previously made a gesture of support for the James brothers and had limited government reward offers to $300. Crittenden's first step was a July 81 meeting with various railroad and express company leaders, at which Crittenden persuaded them to sponsor a $10,000 reward each for the capture of Frank and Jesse James. As the officially accepted story goes, the reward drew the attention of 21-year-old Bob Ford, whose brother Charlie was a member of Jesse's new gang. Bob convinced Charlie that they should kill Jesse and collect the money. Acting through their sister Martha Bolton, the Fords made contact with Governor Crittenden, and Bob met with him on January 13, 1882. They reached a deal. If the Fords killed Jesse, they would receive both the reward money and a pardon for their crimes. Meanwhile, some of Jesse's other gang members had been killed or captured in the face of Crittenden's relentless pursuit. Infighting and paranoia had also taken its toll on the gang. Dick Little, with Bob Ford's help, shot one gang member, Jesse's cousin, Wood Height, and Jesse himself shot Ed Miller, and scared away Jim Cummins after he began to suspect Cummins of, of treachery. During this time, Charlie Ford had helped Jesse James to move from Kansas City to St. Joseph, where he was invited to live with Jesse and his wife and family. In early March of 82, Jesse asked Charlie if he knew of any possible recruits he could bring into the gang, and Charlie suggested his brother Bob Ford. On the day of Jesse's killing, Jesse had talked of leaving for Platt City to rob the bank there during the following day. The Fords had said yes to Crittenden's offer, and according to this generally accepted version, waited for their chance to strike. They knew they couldn't do anything while Jesse was armed. He'd get the drop on them for sure. So they watched and waited until finally, on April 3rd, Jesse was moving in and out of his house and got so hot that he took off his coat. Afraid of being spotted with his pistols, he removed them as well. Then Jesse stepped on a chair in, the, in his living room and reached forward to hang a framed needlework that his mother had given to his family. She was due for a visit soon and he wanted to get it on the wall. Bob and Charlie drew their weapons and Bob put a bullet in the back of Jesse's brain. Bob and Charlie Ford were tried and convicted of murder all on the same day and then pardoned on that same day by Governor Crittenden. Then Governor Crittenden got the railroad companies to pay out the reward most of which ended up going to the county sheriff. The Ford brothers and the sheriff weren't the only ones who profited from Jesse's death. A promoter offered his mother Zarelda $10,000 for the body. She refused, but later charged visitors a quarter each to take pebbles from his grave. Jesse's widow Z had no access to any of his loot, and she had to support herself and her two children, six-year-old Jesse Edwards, note that he was named after that newspaper editor who had done so much to lift Jesse's image, and two-year-old Mary Susan. Z started selling off personal effects and even their family dog. 
Then she started charging ten cents admission to visit the house. But souvenir hunters started taking everything they could steal or chip away, including pieces of the fence, pieces of the house, and outbuildings. The house was a rental owned by Henrietta Salzman, who would end up suing the state of Missouri and Governor Crittenden, claiming that Jesse's killing was the work of state agents. And since Critton had arranged all this, she was right. The public wasn't too thrilled that a standing governor had ordered a hit on a citizen of the state, be he a criminal or not. As for Bob Ford, he went to trial for the murder of Wood Height, but the jury delivered a not guilty verdict, and he hit the road with Charlie, which we mentioned briefly at the top of the story. They wanted attention, and an offer came to them to appear on stage, and by August of 1882, they were in Chicago playing in what was called then the State Street Dive at Chicago's Park Theater, which was a big step up for the aspiring stars. They started reenacting the shooting. Imagine the thrill of reenacting yourself committing murder. The audience cheered. The money flowed. And Charlie and Bob were stars. It was like a murder reality TV show, only on stage every night. Then they hit the big time. Their vagabond shoes were headed for New York City. They wanted to wake up in a city that never sleeps and be king of the hill, top of the heap. They played in Bunnell's Museum until a woman thought by Bob to be Frank James' wife showed up one day, sending shivers up their spines, and they ran for it, signing up next at the Broadway Museum, where they continued their act for another golden week. Then followed Hartford, and after that, Boston. The venue was packed to suffocation, according to the newspapers, with adoring fans. Well, not all of them adoring. The boys had just been introduced when a young man in the front row, sounded a little drunk, called the Fords damned cowards. That apparently struck a nerve, and both Fords jumped into the audience, drawing their guns, and started pistol-whipping the protester and his friend. A woman screamed and fainted, and a large group smashed a window to escape, while a large crowd surrounded the Ford brothers. A police officer named Robinson led a dozen fellow cops into the building. They grabbed the Fords, and were about to haul them out, when the manager intervened, begging the police to charge the Fords later, and he would vouch for them to appear. The police agreed. All was calmed down. The boys continued their appearances later that day. Of course, the boys jumped bail and left Boston the next day. And after a few more months, the boys got tired of doing the shows. And you already know what happened to the Fords. Charlie, suffering from disease, ended up killing himself, and Bob was killed in Creed, Colorado, by a shotgun-wielding man named O'Kelly. Accounts say that Frank James surrendered with the understanding that he would not be extradited to Northfield, Minnesota. Only two cases ever came to trial for Frank. One in Gallatin, Missouri for the July 15, 1881 robbery of the Rock Island Line train at Winston, Missouri, in which a train crewman and a passenger were killed. And one in Huntsville, Alabama for the March 11, 1881 robbery of United States Army Corps of Engineers payroll at Muscle Shoals. Frank James was found not guilty by juries in both cases. Missouri kept jurisdiction over him with other charges, but they never came to trial, and they kept him from being extradited to Minnesota. Frank James died a free man on February 8, 1915, at the age of 72. The Youngers remained loyal to the Jameses when they were in prison, and never informed on them. They ended up being model prisoners, and in one incident, helped keep other prisoners from escaping during a fire at the prison. Cole Younger also founded the longest-running prison newspaper in the United States during his stay at Stillwater. Bob Younger died in prison of tuberculosis on September 15, 1889, at the age of 36. After much legal dispute, Cole and Jim Younger were paroled in 1901 
on the condition they remain in Minnesota. Jim committed suicide on October 19, 1902, while on parole in St. Paul at the age of 54. Cole Younger received a pardon in 1903 on the condition that he leave Minnesota and never return. He traveled to Missouri where he joined a Wild West show with Frank James and died there on March 21, 1916 at the age of 72. Chicago Bank and stopped the Glendale train. It was Jesse's brother Frank that robbed the Gallatin Bank and carried the money from the town. It was in this very place that they had a little race, for they shot Captain Keith to the ground. For Jesse had a wife to mourn for his life. Three children, they were brave. But that dirty little coward that got Mr. Howard has made poor Jesse in his grave. It was on a Saturday night and Jesse was home talking with his family brave. Robert Ford came along like a thief in the night and laid poor Jesse in his grave. Then the people held their breath when they heard of Jesse's death and wondered how he came to die. It was one of the games. Now we're going to take a turn and come back to the theory that Wood Height, Jesse's cousin, was the man occupying space in Jesse's coffin. On April 5, 1882, two days after Jesse James was reportedly shot, the coroner received a tip that Wood Height's body was buried on the grounds of the old Harbison farm rented by Bob Ford, Charlie Ford, and their sister Martha Ford Bolton. John Morris, constable of Richmond, Missouri, wrote Governor Crittenden asking what to do with Wood Height's body and claiming the reward for finding him. Wood Height, as you already know, was Jesse's first cousin, and was said to look very much like him. He had been shot, according to most accounts, the past December. He may well have been kept on ice until the ground in Missouri thawed so they could bury him, which would have kept him fairly well preserved. Or Woodhite might have been killed shortly before Jesse James was. At any rate, no one was ever able to locate Woodhite's body. At any rate, no one was ever able to locate Woodhite's grave or his body. And that does make you wonder. Jesse had started rumors of his death around the region earlier, probably hoping to get the law off his back. When the shooting by Bob Ford hit the papers, it received only a tepid response at first from most people, due to earlier similar reports through the past few years. In 1879, former gang member George Shepard claimed he'd shot James in the back of the head in a shootout in southwest Missouri, and then dumped James's body in a creek. The body, however, was never found, and the robberies continued after a brief hiatus. Other hoaxes and false reports continued to surface after that. On April 4th, the day after the shooting, the L.A. Times raised some doubts in an editorial which stated, Jesse James is like a cat. He's been killed a great many times, only to as often enjoy a resurrection. If James did pull it off, many theorize he did it with the help of at least some of the law. On April 14th, the Liberty Tribune wrote, and I'm paraphrasing, that certain parties still insist that Jesse James is not dead and say that the man killed was not Jesse, but someone did get the reward for killing him, and if the victim wasn't Jesse, one would need to implicate Mrs. James, whose house it was, Mrs. Samuel, Governor Crittenden, Sheriff Timberlake, Police Commissioner Craig, and others to get the reward. 
The writers of the article had no idea at the time that Jesse James was related to four out of five of the people they named. And in Missouri, blood was thicker than water, and money went a long way, too. So if you're still putting the puzzle pieces together, what are the odds that Jesse, hearing that Bob Ford had just killed a man he knew to be his lookalike, Wood Height, in an argument, hatched the idea to put Wood Height in the coffin, and then put Wood Height in the coffin? And I know you're going to be asking about DNA. The body buried in Kearney, Missouri as Jesse James was exhumed in 1995 and subjected to mitochondrial DNA typing. The report, prepared by Ann C. Stone, Ph.D. James Stars, and Ph.D. Mark Stone King, stated that the mtDNA recovered from the remains was consistent with the mtDNA of one of James's relatives in the female line. Daniel J. Duke and his wife and co-author, researcher Teresa, thoroughly contested the DNA results from 1995, claiming that 1. The genealogical relationship of the two men chosen as DNA reference sources is very questionable. 2. The origin of the teeth and hair used for the testing was questionable. 3. That Ph.D. Starr did not apply chain-of-custody guidelines for the human remains. 4. That Starr could have used DNA from Jesse's mother, Zerelda, which was a no-brainer, but chose not to without providing a good answer as to why. 5. That outside witnesses said that the hair used for the testing was that of someone else, namely a John Hartman. 6. That due to three different exhumations from two different gravesites, what they did use was found in a Tupperware bowl. For example, James was buried in a steel coffin. The DNA remains reportedly were pulled from a rotted wood coffin. And it goes on and on. There are lots of questions and doubts out there. The most troubling part of Jesse James' legacy, at least to me, is the heroic outlaw image that still survives today whenever Jesse James comes up in conversation or in print. You have read here what he did, and this is just an essay treatment, not a detailed biography. The only reason Jesse James is still celebrated as a hero takes root in the many articles written by John Newman Edwards, and the fact that the newspapers then accepted Jesse's letters to them with glee and printed them for the public to see. Jesse made himself look like a hero who was standing up to a corrupt system, when indeed he was robbing and killing purely for his own benefit and to satisfy his revenge for what had happened to him as a boy. Thanks to the printed press, Jesse's exploits became the subject of dime novels that cast the James Gang as pre-industrial models of resistance. He became America's Robin Hood, standing up against evil corporations on behalf of America's farmers, or working class, or poor. By the 1950s, filmmakers, anxious to cash in on Jesse James' name and image, portrayed him as a psychologically troubled individual seeking revenge for injustices done to him. The image of Jesse James as a cultural hero has begun to tarnish as the truth is told. But like Babe Ruth once said, heroes get remembered, but legends never die. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Meanwhile, a big thanks to our growing numbers of Patreon supporters who are helping us now in reaching 2001. We know that all of you out there are asked every day to help support one cause or another, and I understand that you just can't help everybody. But we do some good things here at 1001 Networks. First, we tell history the way it really happened, with no political correctness. And we dig deep and try to find anecdotes and side stories that you haven't heard. In our literature podcast, we really do open up a world of classic literature and expose you to captivating short stories and long stories, 
mostly adventure novels. The stories teach us what life and culture was like 100-plus years ago, and they entertain. We also like to bring female authors from the classic era forward, and I have really gained some great admiration for many of them, and I share that with our listeners. Our 1001 Stories Network is a sharing experience. I'm not a professionally trained voice. I have just always liked reading and sharing. I love history. And I see each story we do as a sharing. I love what I do, and our reviewers tell me that that feeling comes through to them. So I'm asking you to consider supporting this quest at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash 1001 Stories Network and pledge a few dollars a month to keeping us on track and helping to pay expenses. Our supporters receive our best of shows ad-free weekly and the upper tier receives early bird releases of ad-free as well. We really appreciate our patrons and I can never thank them enough. The same goes for all you listeners. Thank you for your reviews, your sharing with others, and your staying with us. You all keep us going. We have seven 1001 podcasts now, and I encourage you to try them all. They come out every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and sometimes I release episodes midweek as extras. Those podcasts are 1001 Heroes, this one, 1001 Classic Short Stories, 1001 Stories for the Road, where we're currently doing Mr. Stanfast, a British World War I novel. 1001 Greatest Love Stories, where we're currently doing Anne of Green Gables. 1001 Sherlock Holmes, where we're currently doing Arthur Conan Doyle's second Sherlock Holmes novel, The Sign of the Four. 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. And 1001 History's Best Storytellers, where we house all our past interviews. And by the way, don't forget 1001 Radio Days. I really enjoy our current series, Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, and I ask you to check it out. It's great detective stuff and wonderfully produced and written. That's 1001 Radio Days. Well, everybody, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. Everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. See you then. (laughs) 